Chapter Twelve of The Moon Maid by Edgar Rice Burroughs. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Thomas Copeland. Chapter Twelve Growing Danger. The palace of the Emperor stands, a magnificent pile, upon the loftiest terrace of Lave, extending completely around the enormous crater. There are but three avenues leading to it from the terraces below three magnificent stairways, each of which may be closed by enormous gates of stone, apparently wrought from huge slabs and intricately chiselled into marvellous designs, so that at a distance they present the appearance of magnificent lacework. Each gate is guarded by a company of fifty warriors, their tunics bearing the imperial design in a large circle over the left breast. The ceremony of our entrance to the imperial terrace was most gorgeous and impressive. Huge drums and trumpets blared forth a challenge as we reached the foot of the stairway which we were to ascend to the palace. High dignitaries in gorgeous trappings came down the steps to meet us, as if to formally examine the credentials of Kota and give official sanction to his entrance. We were then conducted through the gateway across a broad terrace beautifully landscaped and ornamented by statuary that was most evidently the work of finished artists these works of art comprised both life-size and heroic figures of individuals and groups and represented for the most part historic or legendary figures and events of the remote past though there were also likenesses of all the rulers of lave up to and including sagroth the present Jemadar. Upon entering the palace, we were led to a banquet hall, where we were served with food, evidently purely in accordance with ancient court ceremonial, since there was little to eat, and the guests barely tasted of that which was presented to them. This ceremony consumed but a few minutes of earth time, following which we were conducted through spacious hallways to the throne room of the Jemadar, an apartment of great beauty and considerable size. Its decorations and lines were simple, almost to severity, yet suggesting regal dignity and magnificence. Upon a dais at the far end of the room were three thrones, that in the centre being occupied by a man whom I knew at once to be Sagroth, while upon either side sat a woman. Kota advanced and made his obeisance before his ruler, and after the exchange of a few words between them, Kota returned and conducted me to the foot of Sagroth's throne. I had been instructed that it was in accordance with court etiquette that I keep my eyes upon the ground until I had been presented and Sagroth had spoken to me, and that then I should be introduced to the Jemadav or Empress, when I might raise my eyes to her also, and afterward to the occupant of the third throne when I should be formally presented to Sagroth spoke most graciously to me, and as I raised my eyes I saw before me a man of great size and evident strength of character. He was by far the most regal-appearing individual my eyes had ever rested upon, while his low, well-modulated yet powerful voice accentuated the majesty of his mien. It was he who presented me to his Jemadav, whom I discovered to be a creature fully as regal in appearance as her imperial mate, and although doubtless well past middle age, still possessing remarkable beauty, in which was to be plainly noted 
Nailah's resemblance to her mother. Again I lowered my eyes as Sagroth presented me to the occupant of the third throne. Julan the Javadar, he repeated the former words of the presentation, raise your eyes to the daughter of Laith, Nailah the Nonobar. As my eyes, filled doubtless with surprise and incredulity, shot to the face of Nailah, I was almost upon the verge of an exclamation of the joy and happiness which I felt in seeing her again, and in knowing that she was safely returned to her parents and her city once more. But, as my eyes met hers, the exuberance of my spirit was as effectually and quickly checked by her cold glance and haughty mien as if I had received a blow in the face. There was no hint of recognition in Ayla's expression. She nodded coldly in acknowledgment of the presentation, and then let her eyes pass above my head toward the opposite end of the throne room. My pride was hurt, and I was angry, but I would not let her see how badly I was hurt. I have always prided myself upon my control, and so I know that then I hid my emotion and turned once more to Sagroth, as though I had received from his daughter, the Nanavar, precisely the favour that I had a right to expect. If the Jemadar had noticed aught peculiar in either Nailah's manner or mine, he gave no hint of it. He spoke again graciously to me, and then dismissed me with the remark that we should meet again later. Having withdrawn from the throne room, Kota informed me that following the audience I should have an opportunity to meet Sagroth less formally, since he had commanded that I remain in the palace as his guest during the meal which followed. It is a mark of distinction, said Kota, but remember, Julan the Javadar, that you have accepted the friendship of Kota and are his ally. Do not embroil me in the political intrigues of Laith, I replied. I am a stranger with no interest in the internal affairs of your country, for the reason that I have no knowledge of them. One is either a friend or an enemy, replied Gotan. I am not sufficiently well acquainted to be accounted either, I told him, nor shall I choose my friends in Laith until I am better acquainted, nor shall another choose them for me. You are a stranger here, said Gotan. I speak in your best interests only. If you would succeed here, I, if you would live even, you must choose quickly, and you must choose correctly. I, Kota the Javadar, have spoken. I choose my own friends, I replied, according to the dictates of my honor and my heart. I, Julan the Javadar, have spoken. He bowed low in acquiescence and when he again raised his eyes to mine i was almost positive from the expression in them that his consideration of me was marked more by respect than resentment we shall see was all that he said and withdrew leaving me to the kindly attention of some of the gentlemen of sagroth's court who had been standing at a respectful distance out of earshot of kotar and myself these men chatted pleasantly with me for some time until I was bidden to join Sagroth in another part of the palace. I found myself now with a man who had evidently thrown off the restraint of a formal audience, though without in the slightest degree relinquishing either his dignity or his majesty. He spoke more freely, and his manner was more democratic. He asked me to be seated, nor would he himself sit until I had, a point of Lathian court etiquette which made a vast impression on me.
since it indicated that the first gentleman of the city must also be the first in courtesy. He put question after question to me concerning my own world, and the means by which I had been transported to Vanna. There are fragmentary, extremely fragmentary legends, handed down from extreme antiquity, which suggest that our remote ancestors had some knowledge concerning the other worlds of which you speak, he said. But these have been considered always the veriest of myths. Can it be possible that, after all, they are based upon truth? The remarkable part of them, I suggested, is that they exist at all since it is difficult to understand how any knowledge of the outer universe could ever reach to the buried depths of Vana. No, not by any means, he said, if what you tell me is the truth, for our legends bear out the theory that Vana is located in the centre of an enormous globe, and that our earliest progenitors lived upon the outer surface of this globe, being forced at last by some condition which the legends do not even suggest, to find their way into this inner world. I shook my head. It did not seem possible. And yet, he said, noting the doubt that my expression evidently betrayed, you yourself claim to have reached Vana from a great world far removed from our globe, which you call the moon. If you reached us from another world, is it then so difficult to believe that those who preceded us reached Vana from the outer crust of this moon? It is almost an historic certainty, he continued, that our ancestors possessed great ships which navigated the air. As you entered Vana by means of a similar conveyance, may not they have done likewise? I had to admit that it was within the range of possibilities, and in so doing to avow that the moon men of antiquity had been millions of years in advance of their brethren of the earth. But after all, was it such a difficult conclusion to reach when one considers the fact that the moon, being smaller, must have cooled more rapidly than earth, and therefore, provided that it had an atmosphere, have been habitable to man ages before man could have lived upon our own planet? We talked pleasantly upon many subjects for some time, and then at last Sagroth arose. We will join the others at the tables now, he said and as he led the way from the apartment in which we had been conversing alone stone doors opened before us as by magic indicating that the jemadar of lathe was not only well served but well protected or possibly well spied upon after we emerged from the private audience guards accompanied us some preceding the jemadar and some following and thus we moved in semi-state through several corridors and apartments until we came out upon a balcony upon the second floor of the palace overlooking the terraces and the crater here along the rail of the balcony were numerous small tables each seating two all but two of the tables being occupied by royal and noble retainers and their women as the jemadar entered these all arose facing him respectfully and simultaneously through another entrance came the Jemadav and Naila. They stood just within the room, waiting until Sagroth and I crossed to them. While we were doing so, Sagroth very courteously explained the procedure I was to follow. You will place yourself upon the Nunavar's left, he concluded, and conduct her to her table precisely as I conduct the Jemadav. Naila's head was high as I approached her, 
and she vouchsafed me only the merest inclination of it in response to my respectful salutation. In silence we followed Sagroth and his empress to the tables reserved for us. The balance of the company remained standing, until, at a signal from Sagroth, we all took our seats. It was necessary for me to watch the others closely, as I knew nothing concerning the social customs of Lathe, but when I saw that conversation had become general, I glanced at Naila. The princess of Lathe so soon forgets her friends? I asked. The princess of Lathe never forgets her friends, she replied. I know nothing of your customs here, I said, but in my world, even royalty may greet their friends with cordiality and seeming pleasure. And here, too, she retorted. I saw that something was amiss, that she seemed to be angry with me, but the cause I could not imagine. Perhaps, she thought, I had deserted her at the entrance to the tunnel leading to the Kalkar city. But no, she must have guessed the truth. What, then, could be the cause of her cold aloofness, who, the last that I had seen of her, had been warm with friendship? I wonder, I said, trying a new tack, if you were as surprised to see me alive as I, you. I had given you up for lost, Naila, and I had grieved more than I can tell you. When I saw you in the audience chamber, I could scarce repress myself, but when I saw that you did not wish to recognize me, I could only respect your desires. She made no reply, but turned and looked out the window across the terraces and the crater to the opposite side of Lave. She was ice, who had been almost fire. No longer was she little Naila, the companion of my hardships and dangers. No longer was she friend and confidant. But a cold and haughty princess, who evidently looked upon me with disfavor. Her attitude outraged all the sacred tenets of friendship, and I was angered. Princess, I said. If it is customary for Lathians thus to cast aside the sacred bonds of friendship, I should do as well to be among the Vagas or the Kalkars. The way to either is open, she replied haughtily. You are not a prisoner in Lathe. Thereafter conversation languished and expired, as far at least as Naila and I were concerned, and I was more than relieved when the unpleasant function was concluded. Two young nobles took me in charge, following the meal. As it seemed that I was to remain a guest in the palace for a while, and as I expressed a desire to see as much of the imperial residence as I might be permitted to, they graciously conducted me upon a tour of inspection. We went out upon the outer terraces which overlooked the valleys and the mountains, and never in my life have I looked upon a landscape more majestic or inspiring. The crater of Lathe, Situated upon a broad plateau, entirely surrounded by lofty mountains, titanic peaks that would dwarf our Alps into insignificance and reduce the Himalayas to foothills, lowered far into the distance upon the upper side. The ice-clad summits of those more distant seemed to veritably topple above us, while a thousand feet below us the pinks and lavenders of the weird lunar vegetation lay like a soft carpet upon the gently undulating surface of the plateau. But my guides seemed less interested in the scenery than in me. They plied me with questions continually, 
until I was more anxious to be rid of them than aught else that I could think of. They asked me a little concerning my own world, and what I thought of Lathe, and if I found the Princess Naila charming, and my opinion of the Emperor Sagroth. My answers must have been satisfactory, for presently they came very close to me, and one of them whispered, You need not fear to speak in our presence. We too are friends and followers of Kotar. The devil, I thought. They are bound to embroil me in their petty intrigues. What do I care for Sagroth and Kotal? And then my thoughts reverted to Naila. She had treated me cruelly. Her cold aloofness and her almost studied contempt had wounded me, yet I could not say to myself that Naila was nothing to me. She had been my friend and I had been hers, and I should remain her friend to my dying day. Perhaps, then, if these people were bound to draw me into their political disputes, I might turn their confidences into profit for Naila. I had never told them that I was a creature of Kotar's, for I was not, nor had I ever told Kotar that I was an enemy to Sagroth. In fact, I had led him to believe the very opposite. And so I gave these two an evasive answer, which might have meant anything and they chose to interpret it as meaning that I was one of them. Well, what could I do? It was not my fault if they insisted upon deceiving themselves, and Naila might yet need the friendship that she had scorned. Has Sagroth no loyal followers, then, I asked, that you are all so sure of the success of the coup d'etat that Kota plans? Ah, you know about it, then, cried one of them. You are in the confidence of the Javadar. I let them think that I was. It could do no harm, at least. Did he tell you when it was to happen? asked the other. Perhaps already I have said too much, I replied. The confidences of Kotar are not to be lightly spread about. You are right, said the last speaker. It is well to be discreet. But let us assure you, Julan the Javadar, that we are equally in the confidence and favor of Kotar with any of those who serve him. Otherwise, he would not have entrusted us with a portion of the work which must be done within the very palace of the Jemadar. Have you many accomplices here? I asked. Many, he replied, outside of the Jemadar's guards. They remain loyal to Sagroth. It is one of the traditions of the organization, and they will die for him to a man, and, he added with a shrug, they shall die. Never fear. When the time arrives and the signal is given, each member of the guard will be set upon by two of Kotar's faithful followers. I do not know how long I remained in the city of Lathe. Time passed rapidly, and I was very happy after I returned to the dwelling of Mogul. I swam and dived with them and their friends in the baths upon our terrace, and also in those of Kotar. I learned to use the flying wings that I had first seen upon Naila the day that she fell exhausted into the clutches of the Vagas, and many were the lofty and delightful excursions we took into the higher mountains of the moon, when Mogo and his friends organized pleasure parties for that purpose. Constantly surrounded by people of culture and refinement, by brave men and beautiful women, my time was so filled with pleasurable activities that I made no effort to gauge it. I felt that I was to spend the balance of my life here, and I might as well get from it all the pleasure that Lathe could afford. I did not see Naila during all this time, and though I still heard a great deal concerning the conspiracy against Sagroth, I presently 
began to attach but little importance to what i did here after i learned that the conspiracy had been on foot for over thirteen kelds for approximately about ten earthly years and seemed according to my informers no nearer consummation than it ever had been in the past time does not trouble these people much and i was told that it might be twenty kelds before kota took action though on the other hand he might strike within the next olaf there was an occurrence during this period which aroused my curiosity but concerning which mogo was extremely reticent upon one of the occasions that i was a visitor in kota's palace i was passing through a little used corridor in going from one chamber to another when just ahead of me a door opened and a man stepped out in front of me when he heard my footsteps behind him he turned and looked at me and then stepped quickly back into the apartment he had just left and closed the door hurriedly behind him there would have been nothing particularly remarkable in that had it not been for the fact that the man was not a lathian but unquestionably a kolkar believing that i had discovered an enemy in the very heart of lathe i leaped forward and throwing open the door followed into the apartment into which the man disappeared to my astonishment i found myself confronted by six men three of whom were kolkars while the other three were lathians and among the latter i instantly recognized kota himself he flushed angrily as he saw me but before he could speak i bowed and explained my action i crave your pardon javadar i said i thought that i saw an enemy of lathe in the heart of your palace and that by apprehending him i should serve you best and i started to withdraw from the chamber wait he said you did right but lest you misunderstand their presence here i may tell you that these three are prisoners i realized that at once when i saw you javadar he replied though i knew perfectly well that he had lied to me and then i backed from the room closing the door after me i spoke to mogo about it the next time that i saw him you saw nothing my friend he said remember that you saw nothing if you mean that it is none of my business mogo i replied i perfectly agree with you and you may rest assured that i shall not meddle in affairs that do not concern me however i did considerable thinking upon the matter and possibly i went out of my way a little more than one should who is attending strictly to his own business that i might keep a little in touch with the course of the conspiracy for no matter what i had said to mogo no matter how i attempted to convince myself that it did not interest me the truth remained that anything that affected in any way the fate of Naila transcended in interest any event which might transpire within vana in so far as i was concerned the unobtrusive espionage which i practised bore fruit to the extent that it permitted me to know that on at least three other occasions delegations of kalpars visited kota the fact that this ancient palace of the prince of lathe was a never-ending source of interest to me aided me in my self-imposed task of spying upon the conspirators for the retainers of kota were quite accustomed to see me in out-of-the-way corridors and passages oftentimes far from the inhabited portions of the building upon the occasion of one of these tours i had descended to a lower terrace along an ancient stone stairway which wound spirally downward and had discovered a dimly lighted room in which were stored a number of ancient works of art 
I was quietly examining these when I heard voices in an adjoining chamber. Upon no other conditions will he assist you, Javadar, said the speaker, whose voice I first heard. His demands are outrageous, replied the second speaker. I refuse to consider them. Lathe is impregnable. He can never take it. The voice was that of Kotar. You do not know him, Lathian, replied the other. He has given us engines of destruction with which we can destroy any city in Bana. He will give you lathe. Is that not enough? But he will be Jemadar of Jemadars and rule us all, exclaimed Kotar. The Jemadar of lathe can be subservient to none. If you do not exceed, he will take lathe in spite of you and reduce you to the status of a slave. Enough, Kalkar, cried Kotar, his voice trembling with rage. Be gone. Tell your master that Kotar refuses his base demands. You will regret it, Lathian, replied the Kalkar, for you do not know what this creature has brought from another world in knowledge of war and the science of destruction of human life. I do not fear him, snapped Kotar. My swords are many, my spearmen are well trained. Be gone, and do not return until your master is ready to sue with Kotar for an alliance. I heard receding footsteps then, and following that a silence which I thought indicated that all had left the chamber. But presently I heard Kotar's voice again. What think you of it? he asked. And then I heard the voice of a third man, evidently a Lathian, replying, I think that if there is any truth in the fellow's assertions, we may not too quickly bring about the fall of Sagroth and place you upon the throne of Lathe, for only thus may we stand united against a common outside enemy. You are right, replied the Javadar. Gather our forces. We shall strike within the Ola. I wanted to hear more, but they passed out of the chamber then, and their voices became only a subdued murmur which quickly trailed off into silence. What should I do? Within six hours, Kotar would strike at the power of Sagroth, and I well knew what that would mean to Narila, either marriage with the new Jemadar or death, and I guessed that the proud princess would choose the latter in preference to Kotar. End of chapter 12. Recording by Thomas Copeland.